Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Andrew Lin, the author of Classic Spirituality for the Modern Man. Andrew is a lawyer, writer, and author of the Classics for the Modern Man series. His mission as a writer is to draw upon classic texts and traditional wisdom to help us answer some of the most profound questions we face. The Classics for the Modern Man series includes classic philosophy, classic political philosophy, and classic ethics. In the conversation, Andrew and I discuss finding harmony in the Tao Te Ching, Blaise Pascal in the role of faith, Schopenhauer in the vanity of existence, Nietzsche's meaning behind the phrase, God is dead, the difference between spiritual and philosophical wisdom, and much more. So please help me welcome the wise and gracious Andrew Lin. Well, Andrew Lin, welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Joshua, for inviting me on again. Well, I've been looking forward to this uh, chat. I've enjoyed going through your book, Classic Spirituality. And I guess the first question I have to kick it off is most of your books are on philosophy. Why a book on classic spirituality? Well, I think I can best answer that question by going to a quote that I, uh, I start the book off with. Um, it's a quote that probably some of your listeners will be familiar with, but it's, 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 um, it's a powerful and intriguing uh, quote. It goes like this, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Now, this is a, a much recognized cycle, and obviously people will have different views of where we are in this cycle right now. But what's important is to grasp that it is the overall quality of our inner beings that gives rise to these effects in the outer world. At least that's what the saying suggests. So if we were to be heading into hard times, it would be because we are in some form or other weak men. And the way out of hard times on both the spiritual and material plane uh, would be by working on our inner selves so that we can manifest strength rather than weakness. So um, the reason then for writing such a book was to express this idea that the, uh, it's the inner being that really determines the quality of, of one's existence and that there are many different uh, traditions around the world um, from different periods in history, each of which can lead us to some, some insights uh, into, into how this this, this inner power can be, in some ways, called upon to assist us. There's another way of putting it, uh, which is this, that, that the spiritual orientation, in some ways, reminds us that we uh, all, in some form or other, partake of a higher order of reality. If we understand that, then we can better appreciate our own intrinsic dignity as human beings, and we can better uh, position ourselves in the world so as to uh, deal with problems that we face and cultivate a kind of backbone and an ability to originate change in our lives. The way I like to explain it to, to anyone who, who cares to ask is that spirituality, when you pay attention to it uh, as, an, as a concept, when you explore it, I should say, as a concept, it allows you to look at yourself from a different angle. It allows you to look at yourself from the perspective of, of eternity, of, of, of immortality, so to speak. It allows you to stand outside uh, your mundane day-to-day -day existence and to, to, to see your life as something that is, your, your, your current existence as something that, that, that is or may not be the totality. And that is a unique perspective that allows you to reflect uh, really upon your existence. And, and it, in particular, it leads us to 
to consider how we may need to account for what we have done in this brief existence. You see, if you take an atheistic perspective, you just look at your life as this life and no more. Who do you, who do you account to for, for that? There was a, uh, I think it's John Locke in his letter on tolerance from the, um, the, the Enlightenment period in, in cultural history. Um, he actually suggested that you should be willing to tolerate everybody but an atheist. And the reason for intolerance towards atheists was that, was the, well, how can you trust an atheist? Because an atheist considers themselves accountable to nobody. If you only have one life and it ends, when it ends, then, then you are accountable to nobody. But if you look at your life from, from the spiritual perspective, um, you, you consider at least the possibility that your life does not end when you die, that there's more to it than that, and that you may be accountable for what you've done here. So it, it, it's a totally different perspective on, mm. on your existence if you, if you decide to take this perspective. Now, it, it struck me that young, young men in particular, now my books are, 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 this series of books is entitled Classic Whatever for the Modern Man, and I've often said that my books are not, uh, are not exclusively directed towards, towards men, women, absolutely can can read and I hope benefit from them but but there was an angle when I was writing them of trying to assist uh, men in particular young men and it's clear to me that young men uh, generally speaking show show little interest in this I think it's to do with the way that the major traditional religions are um, are presented to them in particular you see Christianity on the one hand which is is often at least in in in, in my country in England Probably in the USA it's slightly different, but in England it comes across as being sort of quite apathetic, quite moralistic, um, and, and a little bit um, dry and drab. Um, Islam is presented as being as being rather rather harsh in, in its um, in its in its doctrines and its requirements, and Buddhism is often presented in a, in a pop philosophy manner that seems to lack a little bit of depth. So. In summary, uh, the, the spiritual perspective allows for a, a unique angle on your own existence that, that forces you to think that you may at some point, perhaps beyond this life, be accountable for it. Um, and that when you, furthermore, when you realize that you, are, you have a spiritual dimension uh, and other people have a spiritual dimension, then you can appreciate your own dignity and the dignity of others in a different, uh, in a different, different way, in a more intense way. And um, finally, um, this is something that has not been sufficiently uh, communicated to uh, particular um, young people in general and young men specifically. Mm. Related to this idea of perspective, you cover various faith traditions throughout the book. What would you say are the benefits of learning about different faiths and these different perspectives around the world? The key concept in this book is really the concept of, um, of peren the so-called perennial philosophy. I think it's, I noted when I, was, when I was signing up for your podcast, I think you call your channel perennial wisdom. Um, but there is a concept as well of perennial philosophy. Uh, and this, isn't, this is a, not a new concept. It's, it goes back a long way. The concept really is this, that there is a, a universal core of spiritual wisdom that can be found within all the major uh, religious and spiritual traditions. And that by learning of, of the many uh, different traditions, you can begin to identify the core message that runs through all of them. This perennial philosophy has been, has been summarized by um, the, the philosopher and writer uh, Aldous Huxley as the, the metaphysic that recognizes a divine reality substantial to the world of things and lives and minds. And what that really means is that there is a, um, a, a divine uh, quality that runs through all things, all lives and all minds and, and unifies all, all those, those things. That's the core of the perennial philosophy. So in a sense, that's the core of all, all, all spiritual and religious teaching. And this, this in, a, in a way, um, goes back to what, what I said just a few minutes ago, that there are these benefits that then accrue if you can see 
if you can see life in, in, in this way, i.e. all lives and minds and things as being unified by a divine reality. I mean, first of all, you're going to treat yourself, if you, if you genuinely believe this, you're going to treat yourself differently. You're going to treat yourself with more respect because you are part of that divine reality. You're going to treat others with more respect because you're going to recognize a shared dignity with those others because, because according to this principle, um, there is a divine reality that runs through through all things, all minds, all lives. And, and so it runs through the, the things and the minds and the lives of other people as well. And I would suggest, ultimately, there's also a, a social and even a political benefit because um, tyrannical governments, uh, they, they work through the material world. They work through this, the idea of the carrot and the stick. Um, they, 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 they bribe their their subjects and they threaten their subjects but you can't easily be bribed or or threatened or frightened when you have a firm view of the relative unimportance of the purely material existence well that is a great introduction into the conversation we've got a few chapters that i wanted to to get into uh and the first being the chapter on lao tzu in the Tao Te Ching. So I guess uh, the first question, for any listeners that may not be familiar, could you give a bit of an overview of, of the Tao Te Ching? The Tao Te Ching is the classic text of, of, the, 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 of Taoist philosophy. It's an ancient uh, Eastern, and particularly ancient Chinese philosophy. Uh, and it's been attributed to, to a semi-mystical figure, by the name of Lao Tzu. Now, literally, the Tao Te Ching means this. That it means the classic, that's, that's the word Jing or Ching, of the way, and that's the word Tao or Tao, and, and, and virtue or power, and that's the word De or Te. So it's the classic of the way and of virtue or power. Now, that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily help to understand it, but let me try and explain it this way by focusing on what the, the Tao or the Tao in particular is. The Tao or the Tao is really, is a concept that, that is, um, one should say at the outset, is, is considered to, to defy any easy conceptualization. As soon as we try and put that concept into language in some way, we, we pervert or, or misstate the concept, but still we have to use language to, to, to communicate and to understand. So... So we had to do what we can with language. So, what what can we say about the Tao? The Tao refers to the essential force or energy, which expands from the original unity into a multiplicity of things. That, that multiplicity of things that we find in the universe. So sometimes stated that the the, the original oneness of being at some point gave way into 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 two i.e. The, the yin, that's the, the, the receptive, dark, female quality, and the yang, the active, light, male quality. And then these two elements then interacted to give way to, to three, the three principal aspects of the universe, that's heaven, uh, heaven, earth, and humankind. And then from that came the, the endless diversity of existence. So the Tao is this organizing force that, that, that has, has led um, from, from the original unity into the multiplicity of things that we find in existence. Now, that's, that's all very abstract. Um, but, I mean, it, it, is, it is an essentially abstract concept. The Tao can also be described as the, the mysterious uh, nothing or non-being, which is the, is the transcendent ground of all things. So it's the nothingness from which everything comes and the nothingness to which everything returns. The Tao has often been uh, compared to some, something along the lines of the, the eye of a tornado, the, the empty originating point surrounded by the activity of existence. Perhaps in, in a simpler, in simpler way, the Tao has often been considered as a kind of self-generating order that's found within uh, and governing the natural world. So, I mean, this is this, this abstract concept that is at the heart of Taoism and is the heart of the, the, the Tao Te Ching. It, it, perhaps if, if I just say a few words about Lao Tzu himself, um, and then I'll, I will summarize the, the main uh, themes of the Tao Te Ching before we, we move on. So Lao Tzu himself is a, um, uh, is, is a semi, semi-mythical figure, um, considered to, to have been 
uh, alive around the 6th century BC, and a contemporary of Confucius. It, it is said that when he retired from the court, where he'd been working as an archivist, he set off on a journey into the West, but was stopped at a, a pass on the road, the so-called Hangu Pass, by the gatekeeper there who asked him to compose a text outlining his philosophy. And what he came up with was this Tao, Tao Te Ching, uh, his philosophy of, of the way and of power. The legend has it that Lao Tzu travelled on towards India, where he met the Buddha, uh, and even as far west um, as, as Iran, where he met with Mani, who is considered to be the founder of a dualistic Christian sect. Um, Taoism went on to become, on the one hand, a kind of organized religion, uh, and it still is in, in, in China in particular, uh, focused on interceding with various spiritual forces um, and also on various kinds of meditative and energy practices. Uh, but for, for, for most people in the West, uh, it is um, a kind of um, spiritualized philosophy or philosophical spirituality that is expressed in, in this particular text, the Tao Te Ching, uh, and also in, in the tradition that stemmed from, from this particular text. So what are the themes then of the Tao Te Ching? The, the, the first one I would point to is that the Tao is this original, spontaneous and self-generating source of power in a universe of constant transformation. Um, secondly, I, I would suggest that, that the... Um, the text communicates the way in which uh, this particular power can be released. And it suggests that the way of releasing the power of the Tao is to allow, in each case, the intrinsic virtue or nature of a thing to flourish. And we'll see that, um, that, that concept applied in, in the context of an individual human life so that uh, in your in your own personal lives, you would be advised under the Taoist uh, perspective or teaching to to take an attitude of release, of letting go, of allowing things to develop in their own way, of of, of permissiveness and of non interference. So you could apply that in in your in your relationships uh, with with your with your your loved ones. Um, that, you know. Less interference with, with them is better. Allow them to develop in their own way. You could apply it in your education. Uh, you, you, you can take a, a, a less rigid approach to, to study. You don't necessarily have to, to, to um, enroll on formal courses. You can just relax and enjoy exploring the, the, the world of knowledge as you think, as you think fit. You can apply it in your, in your work. You can, you can uh, develop the, the, the aspects of your professional work that, that come naturally to you and that you naturally um, find are, are easier. So this principle can be applied in, in personal life. Of course, it can also be applied, and, and uh, the Tao Te Ching is quite clear about this and expre- explicit about this, that it should be applied in political and social life as well. So, so the, the, the Taoist sage, who may also be, be a ruler, because the idea was that, 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 that ideally at least, that this philosopher or the sage would become a ruler of a state, this, this philosopher ruler would allow his or her subjects um, to, 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 to do as they please would, 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 would revoke law rather than create law. And, and that is the way to generate a productive, happy and, um, and well-balanced society. So the more we seek to impose our own will on things uh, is, is the more that we distort or inhibit this natural flourishing and therefore, the further removed we are from, from the Tao, the further we move towards tyranny and disorder, um, and the further away we move from um, the, this, this radiant natural developmental power that exists within an individual life, but also within society as a whole. As, as you mentioned earlier, this idea of letting go or or being less rigid seems to be a, a theme that that runs through this bringing ourselves into harmony could you say a bit more on that 
Yes, this this goes to one of the quite interesting points that that, that arises from the from the reading of the Tao Te Ching. Um, how do you bring yourself into into harmony with the Tao? I mean, what practically can can you do to affect that? One of the things uh, you can do is to is to understand this a, a dualistic principle in existence. And what 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 is meant by that is is basically as follows: that um, everything is defined by its opposite. So if you have if you have beauty, you must by definition have ugliness. If you have a strength, you must by def- definition have weakness. If you have ability, you must have incompetence. So when you set out to pursue any of these, these positive qualities, you inevitably bring into being uh, its, its opposite. A, a good example of that would be uh, like a, a examinations in, in, a, in a school. You know, when, you, when you start to assess children within, within a class, uh, you, you may think we, we're identifying the smart ones we identify and I'm not saying you shouldn't do this I have a different I'm not expressing any any view as to education but I'm simply running through the philosophy that uh, if if in a classroom you you attempt to identify the high high achievers those who are the most promising of the children in that class you will inevitably um, identify those who are not you cannot do the one without the other and that is 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 one of the essential insights of of Taoism there's a quote from early on in the Tao Te Ching which summarizes this. So, so Lao Tzu says as follows, All in the world know the beauty of the beautiful, and in doing this they have the idea of what ugliness is. They all know the skill of the skillful, and in doing this they have the idea of what the want of skill, the lack of skill, is. So if you want to, to, to pursue, uh, identify the beautiful, you will inevitably identify those who are not beautiful. If you want to identify the skillful, you will identify those who are not skillful. You can't do the one without the other. So, so just be aware when you are aggressively pursuing a particular goal that you are also bringing into being the opposite of what you're pursuing. There's, there's another um, concept which is best described as a kind of um, outcome independence. You see this, this concept runs through other spiritual traditions as well. Um, including the, 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 some of the Hindu texts and the Buddhist texts. A, a, an interesting quote from the Tao Te Ching is, on, on, in this respect, is the following. All things spring up, and there is not one which declines to show itself. They grow, and there is no claim made for their ownership. They go through their processes, and there is no expectation of a reward for the results. The work is accomplished and there is no resting in it as an achievement. What the Tao Te Ching is doing there is describing you know, the natural course of development in, in nature. Everything grows, de- declines, grows again, uh, and then it declines. And at no point in this course of, of growth and the rhythm of growth and decline does, does the natural world um, sit back and rest in its achievement. It doesn't, doesn't pat itself on the back and applaud itself for its performance. It simply acts. And the Tao Te Ching suggests that this is a, a, um, an approach that, as human beings, we should also adopt, imitate the natural world in this respect. So we do what, what comes naturally to us, and we may achieve something by so doing, but we should never rest in that, never never pat us, not, not, not sit there and pat ourselves on the back, not focus on the particular outcome, but focus on the action, on, on the, the growth and the, 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 the blossoming and, and the fruition of our activities, and then the inevitable decline. We, we simply must um, experience this natural rhythm that, that is part of, of existence, rather than trying to to, to, to obtain particular outcomes and then hold on to those particular outcomes. The, um, the Tao Te Ching also focuses on um, the, the importance of abstaining from interference. So 
as I mentioned earlier, the, the idea is that you don't seek to interfere uh, in, in the activities and lives of, of others. Let all beings, all sentient or non-sentient beings, grow and develop as is natural to them. And we, we shouldn't interfere, suggests the Tao Te Ching, even if it would be benevolent to do so. So, so that would apply to, to cases of, 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 for example, charity. So this is where the, 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 the Taoist tradition is somewhat different, for example, from the, from the Christian tradition. The Christian tradition is quite heavily focused on, on charity, doing, doing good to others. But the Taoist tradition suggests that the benevolence is itself a kind of interference. And that interference is, is likely to be... To, 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 well, it may or may not be detrimental, but whatever it is, it, it's going to have consequences that are not easily predictable at the moment of the, of the interference. Um, in particular, Lauda focuses on um, the, the multiplication of, uh, of laws, and he suggests that the multiplication of laws increases poverty of the people, and that the more laws we have, the more thieves and robbers there will be. On the one hand, of course, it, it, it's it's natural that the more laws you have, the more you're going to have people who break the laws because there are more laws to break. But on the other hand, it, it may also be the case that the more laws you have, uh, the, the the greater the disrespect for law because law is being imposed where it should not be imposed. Mm. Uh, finally, I, I, I suggest that the... Um, the um, the true focus of, of Taoism in the Tao Te Ching is, is on the power of absence, the power of inaction, the power of emptiness. Um, one of the great metaphors in, in, in the work is the metaphor of the wheel, of, the, of the, the, the hollow vessel, and of doors and windows. In each case, uh, Lauza says, it's, we look at a door or a window, for example, uh, and the what makes the door or the window functional is is the empty space. What makes the vessel carrying uh, wine or or water? What makes that vessel functional is the, the, the gap, the space inside it. Um, what makes the wheel functional is the gap between the spokes. The uh, the, the virtue of any any particular thing depends as much upon the emptiness and the absence of certain qualities, as it does on the inclusion of certain qualities. Really interesting. I really appreciate that, Andrew. It seems to be so counterintuitive to how we initially think some of these concepts. But maybe we can transition to a figure from the West that you write about, Blaise Pascal. Why did you include Pascal in the book? Yes, well, the book actually has two uh, two sections, broadly speaking. So, I, I have the first section is the traditional, the the, the more ancient of the uh, spiritual works that are included, and the second half moves on to the modern works. Now, when I say modern, they're not they're not very modern. Almost all the works are pre twentieth century. So, when I say modern, what I'm talking about is um, from the, the post post medieval, from from the Renaissance till about the to about the nineteenth century. So, Pascal appears quite near the beginning of the second section. And, of course, from, from that time in history, from about the end of the, the medieval period and the early Renaissance, uh, at least in the West, people began to um, question the, the, the traditional religion, of obviously Christianity, uh, the traditional religion of the Western, Western world, and start to, to, to have doubts about it, and, and this is a theme in the second half of the book, and we'll get on to to, to Schopenhauer and Nietzsche a bit later. But Pascal is interesting because he's at the very beginning of this of this process. Now, why did I include him? It's it's because Pascal attempts to um, attempts to justify a belief in in God through a rationalistic approach. So Pascal is there to show that there was a rationalistic approach to belief uh, in the divine, or at least the, that belief in God is no less rational than belief in many other things that we are content to believe. This idea, I guess he's most known for 
what you're referring to is is Pascal's wager. How would you describe Pascal's wager to some of the listeners? Well, Pascal's wager is best understood, I would suggest, by tracing uh, his logic. So let's start here. Pascal invites us to think about the predicament of, of mankind. He invites us to imagine a number of men all in chains, all of them condemned to death. Some of them are strangled every day in sight of the others. Those who remain see their own predicament in the ones who have been eliminated. They are all compelled, nevertheless, to wait their turn, looking at each other sorrowfully and without hope. And that, says Pascal, is is our predicament, because we live, uh, but we watch around us our friends and our relatives uh, and uh, and others who who may not be close to us pass, pass away. So we see death around us, death, is, death happens, and we know without the shadow of a doubt that it will come to us one day. So we are forced by the nature of things to, to address ourselves. We have no choice but to address ourselves to the central question, and that is what is the proper approach to the question of God? Because, of course, if we know that we're going to, 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 to die at some point, then we have to think... I mean, it makes sense to think what may lie afterwards. Now, Pascal's wager is his attempt to to solve that problem using using reason rather than pure faith. And the wager goes like this. If you choose to believe in the existence of God and you are proved right, then then that was a good that was a good gamble. You you did well. You would be rewarded uh, for that with eternal life. You got it right, and and God will reward you in the afterlife. If you choose to believe in God and you're wrong, let's say it all comes to an end, uh, when, when, we, when we die, there's nothing more, then, then you've not lost very much by believing in God. You've lost nothing by believing in God, really. Um, your loss, at least, will be insignificant um, compared to the potential gain. Conversely, if you choose to disbelieve in God and you're proved right, then your gain for being right would be relatively insignificant. But if you choose to disbelieve in God and you're proved wrong, your loss would be total, would be immense, because you would have um, failed to accept the truth of the, the divine being who was there to offer you salvation if you were willing to do so. So... It's a kind of game theory in the modern sense of, of that term. Uh, you could, but Pascal, in, in essence, invites us to consider the different outcomes of our different possible beliefs and shows us that it makes sense to believe in God because if we are right about that and we, and we believe, that our gain is immense. If we're wrong, it doesn't really matter. But if we choose not to believe in God and we're wrong, then that has very serious negative consequences for us now of course a belief in god or more loosely as a spiritual dimension um, may be difficult to justify beyond this kind of game theory proof um, but there are some other angles that pascal uh, invites us to take in particular he he, he argues and shows us that, that that the requirement of strict proof of god um, is is, is in a sense it's unfair to, to, to make that requirement because we don't necessarily require strict proof of everything in which we believe. And he gives examples of some, some basic first principles that we all accept as true and we have to accept as true. Examples of those are, are the concepts of space, time, motion and number. You, no one has ever proved uh, that the space exists or prove that time exists, other than our own sort of experience uh, shows to us that the space must exist uh, and shows to us that time must exist. But, but there's been no independent proofs of those particular uh, phenomena. There are, in fact, Pascal says, the basic presuppositions upon which all other proofs are built. So, for example, when we carry out our, our modern science, we presume time. Time is the thing upon which science is built, but you don't independently uh, approve time. Time exists before science even starts. 
So Pascal suggests there that, that, that in, in de- demanding strict proof of God, we are demanding more of God than, than we do of certain other concepts that we rely upon um, um, t- to conduct our basic reasoning. Now, that's a little bit abstract, but, but more persuasively, perhaps, he, he reiterates that, um, the, the, the idea that we need strict proof of God in order to believe that God exists um, is incompatible with the way we, we live our lives generally, the kinds of proofs we demand uh, when we make decisions about everything else we face in life. In particular, he says that, that we almost always operate in life on the basis of probability rather than certainty. Mm. We, we, we don't usually demand certainty of, of, of anything. We, we act on probability. So the probability that, that we are, you know, we, we're going to get lung cancer if we smoke. It's a probability. It's not a certainty. So, so we decide not to smoke because the probability is sufficiently high that we don't want to, to get lung cancer. The same about say, alcohol abuse. I'm not going to go and drink two bottles of whiskey tonight because the probability is that will make me very, very, very ill. But it's not an absolute. Well, I suppose it is an absolute certainty. One bottle of whiskey uh, would be a probability. Um, in, in short, most of our decisions are based upon probability. What kind of what kind of um, of work do I want? What kind of occupation am I going to choose for myself in life? I can't I can't guarantee that that choice is going to be um, going to be the right one for me and is going to be successful. There are too many indeterminate qualities, so I act on a on a probability uh, type assessment of of the kinds of benefits and disadvantages associated with a particular line of work. Um, Pascal then um, uses these different uh, approaches that, that are essentially rational in nature to, to both explain how you can argue in support of uh, the belief in God, but also to show that the, 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 the requirement of strict proof of God is actually in itself uh, quite unreasonable. It seems to be such an important point, whether it's faith in God, or maybe you could take this same thought experiment around whatever particular path or philosophy of life that you're choosing. It does seem that we can tend to think that we have certainty many times when really it's just, as you mentioned, it's a probability type of thing. Um, how do you see that connecting with maybe applying it outside of, of, a, of a faith question, maybe a, a virtue question? In, in what sense would you, would, you, would you think it applies in a virtue context? It, it seems like this idea of this Pascal's wager, this basically operating on, on faith for many of our actions, comes up more than, more than we realize. I mean, I, I agree with you, I think. I mean, I agree with you that, that there's the, the, the probabilistic uh, analysis. There's no reason why it, it can't be applied throughout life. I mean, that's Pascal's point, in, in essence, that, that, that very, it's, it's, there are very few uh, matters that are determined by strict proof. Most of what we're dealing with, whether it's, whether it's uh, choices that we're making in life uh, or whether it's um, decisions, as you, you, you suggest, about how we live a virtuous life. Again, we are making probabilistic determinations uh, most of the time. We're not, we're not actually um, able to prove uh, with absolute certainty. How about another interesting figure in the book of Schopenhauer, maybe sometimes called a bit of a, a pessimistic philosophy, is something you write in this chapter is atheist spirituality. Maybe you could describe that for us. Yes. Well, atheist spirituality, is a, it appears to be something of a, of a contradiction in terms. Uh, the way I, I present it is as a philosophy and a method of transcendence that is valid and effective, even in the absence of belief, or even in, 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 in cases of disbelief in the existence of a benevolent God. So it's a kind of... Uh, method of transcendence that is effective even though we may not um, believe in a benevolent God. And how about this concept of the vanity of existence? 
lying behind that is um, Schopenhauer's um, famous concept of the of the will. Uh, the will in Schopenhauer is is the, the driving force behind all phenomena. It, it is this restless and relentless um, energetic force that runs through all things. For humans, the will takes the form of two primary impulses. That's hunger and the sex drive. Uh, it, it's also um, stimulated by the effect of, of boredom. That's because... It, Every satisfaction of an existing desire, let's say a, 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 an aspect of, the, of the, the desire for food or the sex drive, um, is, is followed by boredom and then the seeds of some new desire so that there's never an end of it. It's, it's a constant um, um, to and fro between uh, in, incitement and, and boredom, incitement and boredom. This this is the operation of, of the, the will. It is blind and it generally um, obtains very little in return for its incessant activity. Its main uh, achievement is just to keep the, the human body together and the human species um, in, in existence. The most pronounced effects of this, uh, this so-called vanity of existence are experienced, Schopenhauer suggests, in our relationships with, with time and our relationships with our particular goals. So let's consider time, first of all. We find ourselves um, suddenly existing after many thousands of years of non-existence. This is, this, is, this is our predicament, according to Schopenhauer. We then exist for a short spell, that's our, our short lives, and then we are apparently... Uh, consigned or sent back into non-existence. And as if that wasn't bad enough, in this short moment of existence, we are condemned to live life in, in an ever-present um, ever present moment. And that, that present moment is, is a present moment, but it's always passing away. So that which um, has been the past exists no more. Um, it exists just as little as that which has never been the future. So our uh, existence is focused on this tiny sliver of the present, a, a continuous present where the past is always, is always gone and the future is never t- to be found. But the present just rolls ever, ever forward. Now you might think then that it would be sense to embrace the present as the true reality. And some modern pop philosophy tends to suggest that you should live in the present. But Schopenhauer considers that that too would be a kind of folly, since it cannot make sense to attach any real significance to something that passes away in an instant. That's Schopenhauer's uh, view of time and time's relationship to the vanity of existence. But he also um, pointed to to our goal-setting tendency as, as another aspect of the vanity of existence. What he meant here was that we, we spend our whole lives striving for uh, something or other that we think will make us happy. And that results in one, or one of two outcomes. Either we fail to obtain it, in which case we're disappointed, or we obtain it, in which case ultimately we're also disappointed too because the things we obtain become so familiar to us that we tend to we tend to discount them and discredit them and think that they were not really worth uh, chasing after all. So we spend this, this narrow slither of time, this continuous present that we have, and even that is only in itself a narrow slither of time, and we spend that chasing these goals that, that, that never bring us satisfaction. And to transition to a more popular figure today, Nietzsche, um, often known for these many kind of short, short quotes, but the one where that's listed in the book where it's, he says, God is dead. What does Nietzsche mean by this, uh, by this phrase? By God is dead. I, I would suggest that Nietzsche means to express that, um, the, the enlightenment that's, that's a, a period in, um, European cultural history, um, and the scientific revolution together have killed the belief in belief in God. 
So by the 19th century, when Nietzsche was writing, um, the uh, the belief in God had already been been um, sufficiently killed by these two um, cultural uh, phenomena, the, the Enlightenment that, and the rationalistic philosophy that went along with it, um, and the scientific revolution. The problem for Nietzsche was that was that the although God had died in that sense that that, that there was sufficient doubt in God that he didn't really um, exist properly anymore in within the culture. Uh, nevertheless, the European moral system had been predicated on a belief in this Christian God. So therefore, what was left in Europe was a kind of was a moral system that lacked a solid foundation and, and a governing force. So with the old system now defunct, a, a new ethical order had to come into being, but there was as yet, at the time of Nietzsche's writing, and arguably still so, there was no, um, no new ethical order that had come into being to replace it. So Europe uh, and European culture, civilization, was thus exposed to the consequences of this, which were, Nietzsche thought, a kind of nihilism and potential uh, meaninglessness. And how about this idea that he writes about of, of the Ubermensch or Superman? What, what does he mean here? The Ubermensch is a concept that has been uh, much misunderstood uh, due to its association with certain political trends in the, in the 20th century. In fact, it's, 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 it is not uh, predominantly a political concept at all. It really is a, um, a profound um, moral and, and spiritual um, concept. In, in substance, the essence of this doctrine is the idea that man, mankind, in, in its current state, is something to be surpassed. That, the, that the, to, be, to, to reach the status of the ubermensch, the, the, over, the overman, the superior man, um, we have to overcome our current state of being. There are several aspects of this, this overcoming. Uh, there is the overcoming of traditional religion and mora- morality, which are no longer fit for purpose. That relates back to, of course, the, the, the saying that God is dead. As we've, as we've explored already uh, in, in the 19th century, there was a sufficient doubt in the existence of God. Uh, you could say God, God was dead. But the, the, the traditional uh, morality um, that, that stemmed from and was based upon Christianity uh, continued to, to, to be the, the, the predominant morality in, this, in society, but it, it lacked a, a solid foundation. So the ubermensch is, is, is the, the man or, or the people, I should say, who are capable of overcoming this traditional morality and building, building a new one. Um, another aspect of overcoming is the overcoming of, of nihilism, um, which is uh, a phenomenon that threatens to overwhelm um, the, 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 the weaker, uh, weaker men and women with a sense of hopelessness. And there is also the overcoming of the self and the limitations associated with, with oneself. Above all, I would suggest that the... The, the fundamental um, element in the concept of Ubermensch is that the Ubermensch is able to forge his or her own value system. So again, in the context of a world in which God is dead, in which there is still a kind of morality that was based upon the belief in God, but there is no longer a belief in God. So that moral system is is lacking in, in, in proper foundation. The Ubermensch needs to step in um, and... We need to be able to um, to establish new value systems, and and, and the, the true Ubermensch is not necessarily establishing a new value system for the whole of humanity. He or she is able to establish a a unique and personal uh, value system that is is effective for for themselves. But that, that in doing so, uh, if 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 there were enough Ubermensch, then then society as a whole would be reinvigorated by these new value systems that would come into being. 
in the book itself, I, I introduced this using a passage from Thus Spake Zarathustra. That's one of Nietzsche's famous books. Now, Zarathustra is more commonly known in English as Zoroaster. And he's, he's a speaking character in, in the book. He goes to the marketplace of a town to teach his doctrine in, in Nietzsche's book. But he finds there there's a performance taking place and there's a, a rope dancer is walking between two towers in, in the town. And this is a well-known metaphor in Nietzsche for the efforts of some men to make the leap from mankind's current state to that of the superman. So, so the tightrope walk is the, is the difficult line that mankind has to walk from his, his or her current state into the state of the superman. Now, in this town in which Zarathustra is visiting, there he's observing the rope dancer and suddenly behind the rope dancer there appears a, a little little buffoon a little man who's a buffoon and he jumps behind the rope dancer who's trying to progress from one tower to another along this narrow rope and the buffoon leaps over the rope dancer and causes the rope dancer to fall to the ground and die and Zarathustra understands the meaning of this it's 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 prophetic he understands that that the the rope dancer is the, is, the, is the one who's trying to affect this transition towards the ubermensch, away from current state of existence to this new state of being. But the buffoon represents the, the old, servile and degraded ways of mankind, who are, which are able to, to impede any transition towards the, the ubermensch or the superman. So Zarathustra is disappointed, disappointed and has to leave the town. As I say, it's, it's really a, a symbolic story of Nietzsche's view of, of the difficulty of making the transition from our current state to the state of, of the Superman. There are many uh, forces um, that are pulling us back to, to our more primitive, primitive state. Now, there's another character that Nietzsche talks about, the, the the, the character of the so-called last man. The, the last man is the opposite of the, the, the ubermensch or the superman. The, the last man is, is, is a type of, of humanity. And Nietzsche describes the, this, this type of person as, as follows, that the last man is the type of man who, who wants to be the equal of all other men, share all the same desires with them. The last man, he, he, he may love his neighbor, he may have discovered happiness, but he is a herd creature. Um, he lacks depth in experience, and to him everything is, 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 is trivial. So the big questions of existence are totally beyond this, this type of person. So in Nietzsche, then, we have a, a, these two types of humanity. You have, on the one hand, the, the ubermensch, the superman, um, who is the ideal type, but but we have not yet managed to make that leap to the ideal type. Uh, and then there is the figure of the, of the last man, who is a um, is is egalitarian, but also um, an embodiment of the herd morality and of of ultra conventionalism and of an inability to transcend his existence in, in any meaningful way at all. So the question really for us in Nietzsche is whether we uh, or our contemporary societies as a whole are, are willing to, to attempt to make the leap towards the, 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 the ubermensch, to, to, to push ourselves towards this, this, this idea of the, of the, of the Superman. And I, I would suggest that, that societies, most of our, at least the Western societies, have decided that they are not going to follow Nietzsche. That obviously, um, this concept of the Superman was was troubled by uh, what happened in the middle of the 20th century with the political movements in, in that period and the the, the 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 wrongs that were done in that period of history, and and somehow this concept of Superman. Um, became associated with some of those political movements. 
and this is um, this is the problem now with with really uh, promoting the idea of the Ubermensch or the Superman. But what I would suggest is that it's, you know it's time it, we're already what 2020, 2022, so it's already more than sort of 70, 80 years since since that period, and it's time for us to to to, to look again at these this this philosophy and this sense of spirituality and to to examine you know the question of whether um whether there's anything in it whether whether we really should be trying to forge ahead um and, and trying to to establish a kind a value system that that is fresh and new and is able to take humanity further in its evolution or or whether we are going to get stuck in in the value systems of, of the past and uh, and in a sense give up uh, the idea that humankind can progress well that is great i really appreciate it andrew uh giving us some insight into your book classic spirituality for the modern man um just one quick wrap-up question if i could our time is has flown by here uh, do you differentiate at all between spiritual and and philosophical wisdom? I mean, there's a great deal of overlap. I mean, the Buddha is a great example. Buddha is 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 famously considered as the founder of a religion and the founder of a philosophy. But to me, let me summarize the way I see it: philosophy for for me is concerned with man viewed in the light of this world. Spirituality is for for me concerned with man viewed in the light of eternity. And that was what I suggested at the beginning and why I think the spiritual perspective is significant because if you can take that perspective, you are essentially looking at, at your own life and the lives of others from, a, from, from, from the angle of eternity. So you then have to ask yourself, like, what, what, what happens if this is not it? What happens if there is something beyond this brief existence? How am I going to be accountable? And, and who am I going to be accountable to? Who or what am I going to be accountable to? And, and, and what are they going to expect of, of me? So that is, for me, the, the difference between spiritual wisdom and, and f- philosophical uh, wisdom. Well, it's an interesting and important point and a great way to wrap it up. Um, I'm grateful for your time. Where would you point people interested in in learning more about uh, you and, and this series? The, the be- very best way is to um, is to is to buy and read the the books. Uh, the series begins with classic philosophy for the modern man, and there was a podcast uh, we've done already on that particular book. And classic spirituality for the modern man is a second in the series. There is. The third in the series is called Classic Political Philosophy for the Modern Man, and the fourth is called Classic Ethics for the Modern Man. So um, if readers are, your listeners are interested, then please do go on to, I mean, Amazon is, is where you can, you can get them from. You can also get them from Waterstones online, Barnes & Noble online, um, and, and just, just go and have a look at, at those, those books. There are some other books I've written in particular. I've got an interest in renaissance literature that was my first field of study um so i've written a series of books on on shake on shakespeare tales they actually are prose classic prose versions of shakespeare tales and i do introductions to to all of them and in a certain sense um i i i incorporate um some of some of my philosophical views into uh, those introductions uh, to to the Shakespeare tales as well, so that's another another avenue to find out more. But uh, as I say, I really would um, recommend just just digging into those um, those those early uh, in, into the series of classic for the modern man um, books, starting with classic philosophy, then moving to classic spirituality, and then then going either to classic ethics or classic political philosophy. And we'll link everything in, that was discussed in the show notes, so you can easily check it out. Uh, Andrew Lynn, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. 
These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.